Right, so if kids want to head to, to uh, kids' lesson, they can head out now. All right. Off they go. Now for us, we are looking at Mark. So we are continuing to look at Mark and how we can follow the king uh, through this book of Mark. And uh, we're slowly kind of revealing who Jesus Christ is. We're getting more and more of the picture. And so far, we haven't seen... Uh, Jesus really deal with either his enemies or with sin. And today we're getting both of those mixed together. So far we've kind of just seen uh, healings, displays of power, some demonstrations of his kingdom, but we haven't seen what that kingdom fully means yet. And at this point we're kind of letting it loose and, and seeing that Jesus has come not just to heal but to forgive sins. That sin is this great enemy that Christ has come to conquer as king. And we're seeing his, uh, his kind of first revelation that, that that is this great enemy. But then we see the second enemy, uh, all the self-righteous religious people who don't think they have any sin, who ironically are maybe the greater enemy of Jesus, um, who so stand against what Jesus represents that while sin can be kind of conquered and forgiven, the, the hearts of these self-righteous ones uh, prove almost harder and more difficult to really have victory over. And so today we're looking at uh, what it means to be sinners in light of what, who Christ is. And my hope is that we have confidence uh, in calling ourselves sinners because Jesus Christ has come for sinners. He has come to forgive sinners, he has come to call sinners, and he has come to actually befriend sinners and to become, you know, to dwell in fellowship with them, that we might have relationship with Christ, not born out of this kind of illusory self-righteousness, but because we have fully committed that we, we are fully sinners and desperately need Jesus Christ. And so uh, let's look at, at Mark 2, verses 1 through 14. And we're going to see uh, this kind of new aspect of the story as we deal with Jesus uh, and his interaction with sin. Read with me. To yourselves, not, not out loud. <laughs> I, I don't want to get that. I know, that's bad news. Uh, and when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they, had not, uh, when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We've never saw anything like this. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you came not just to, to take on suffering, but to take on our sins because we are sinners. And we bear the guilt and shame of our sin, and we desperately need uh, more than just a comforter, we need a savior. We need someone who will forgive. And Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ. We thank you for everything that he is to us, including the, our Savior and our, the forgiver of our sins. Father, we ask that we might relate to our sin in light of Christ, that we might receive Jesus in all of his forgiveness, and that we might be a people who run from self-righteousness as much as we run from sin. And Father, who regard sinners as those who desperately need the physician and not with judgment. Father, would you help us to, to bring all of these things to bear on our hearts by your Spirit? We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, we have a group of men, and they have been hearing about Jesus. We have seen the, the leper healed. We have seen uh, the demon oppressed set free. We have seen many healed and brought to Jesus and they get an idea that four, four friends are going to take a paralytic man to go see Jesus. And so they carry him on four corners of his mat and go to see Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is kind of popular at the moment. He gets less popular as we go on because uh, he gets less, less and less uh, PC, I guess, in, in, uh, to be uh, kind of... Uh, Wrong tempo, yeah, yeah, uh, never mind. Uh, so, uh, all right, so house is in these days. He's in his little tiny house. Uh, house is probably 15 feet by 15 feet, all right, not big. Clay, these, uh, these little cubes. And so if Jesus is that popular, uh, we're not surprised this place is packed. They're trying to get this man to Jesus, and now they could be polite. They could wait for Jesus to be done, hope that Jesus happens to walk by. Uh, no. All right, they can't even get to the door, so what do they do? Uh, they take the stairs up the back, up onto the roof. All right, in case we're not familiar with ancient Near Eastern architecture, uh, this is not like a nice little grass thatched roof. This is, this is a, a, a second level 
And people, they slept up there when it was uh, too hot. They did work up there. Uh, this is a substantial part of the building. This isn't something you just kind of sweep aside. All right, so we're, see, we're picturing the scene here. All right, all these people huddled, huddled in this tiny little building as Jesus is preaching. And up above in the ceiling, you start to hear the sound of someone digging it out. And the scratching and the, the roof is shaking and, and particles are falling. All right, some of you get really embarrassed when your babies cry. All right, way worse. They're just going to, they're going to town, hacking away at this roof. And all right, so he's preaching. Everyone's looking up, trying not to look up, as you all try to do. You try not to get distracted. Uh, and the, the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger until this man is being lowered down right in the middle of the church service. All right. What do we do with that? Now, the assumption might be, well, that's like incredibly intrusive or presumptuous. It's disruptive in the least. But what's on the minds of these men? They're, they're desperate to get this man to Jesus. And there's no other hope, and so they, they have, they've abandoned all social order, they've abandoned all the rules, and they're going to see Jesus. Now, they don't know that he can heal a paralytic. He's never done it. They've seen some other amazing things. They've seen lepers healed and, and demons cast out, but they don't know that for certain. And they also don't know how Jesus is going to react. But I hope, that, I hope that we know how Jesus reacts. Holistically, we, ought, we want to learn to, to anticipate who Jesus is. That we know what, what he thinks and how he receives things. And one thing you should know about Jesus is, uh, he likes this kind of thing. He gets a kick out of it. Like, he like, seems to actually enjoy when people are kind of crazy and push him to the edge of his, his supernatural power. What does he say? He, he, he delights in their faith. And I think it's instances like that where the, the woman who's bleeding, she, she says to herself, she says, you know what? He doesn't even have to know that I'm here. I can be healed. I'll just touch his, touch his cloak. No one had ever done that, and she's healed. And terrified that Jesus is getting mad, what does he do? He, he commends her for his, her faith. Or we have the centurion, and He's talking to Jesus, hey, can you heal my servant? And there's this like, well, can Jesus go into his house or not? And what does he say? You know, you have authority. Just say the word and it'll be done. And Jesus is, he commends this guy to all the people. Look at such faith. Or the Gentile woman who says, you know what? I know that I have no part in you, Jesus, but can I have the scraps that fall from the table? And she's commended for a great faith. This kind of presumptuous, throwing everything to Jesus, he delights in that. And he delights in that kind of faith. He delights in those people. And with this kind of great, amazing, presumptuous faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus gives this kind of equally amazing response. Verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. All right. Now, this hasn't come up yet. 
We think that that should be on every single page, but it's not, not yet. And that's where we start to see that more and more of Jesus is revealed as we go through Mark. And we're dealing for the first time with the reactions to sin and forgiveness and what that has to do with Jesus' kingdom. That he is the forgiver of sins. Now, when Jesus says that, is that what the people want to hear? I think in a lot of ways, those four men lowering down their brother on, on a mat were not hoping for forgiveness of sins. As that guy has fallen through the ceiling, I don't think the forgiveness of sins was on his mind. Right, but that's where we are, we are seeing this, this undercurrent, the, the deeper foundations of what Jesus has come to do. That there's more to the kingdom than just ending suffering. That suffering is but a symptom of a larger world that is broken. That behind all suffering is sin. And that sin has brought about all the misery of the world. Our sin because we as humanity did not want to obey, do not want to obey, do not want to glorify, do not want to honor Jesus Christ as King. And that is the great cause of all suffering. And Jesus here is saying, you know what, that's what I've come to fix. And that every time you see the healings in the Bible, it's supposed to be indicative of something larger, that he's going to heal and he's going to end all suffering because he's going to kill the sin at the root of the real problem. That that's what Jesus does. We want him to just kind of start slapping band-aids on things, but he starts to really heal the brokenness of the world. Now I say that uh, small application here. I just want to remind you, sometimes Jesus is intentionally irrelevant. He's intentionally irrelevant. That you think that you want, want something from Jesus, you think that you want something from a sermon, you think you want something from Scripture, maybe God knows better. And maybe he has better gifts in store. Maybe he has things that he's doing that you don't understand. This is probably one of those things. That the forgiveness of sin is a greater gift than the healing of the paralytic. That yes, Jesus could heal the man. He could give him a new house. He could let him win the ancient Near Eastern lottery. He could give him 50 camels, whatever the great... And he would die, and he'd be judged for a sin, and he would bear wrath and judgment for all eternity. Jesus has higher things in mind. And now, as Jesus brings these higher goals and these higher things of the kingdom to bear in the lives of people, who rises up but Jesus' other great enemy, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees? that they're reacting to this ultimate goal. And they start kind of, they're not as terrible as they could be at first. Now, they're questioning in their hearts. They're not coming with great faith. uh, But they're asking kind of decent questions. Uh, Verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive but God alone? Who can forgive sins? All right, this is a legitimate question. 
People shouldn't just be running around saying they can forgive sins. <laughs> yes. Uh, not okay. But what's different about the scribes and the Pharisees is so many other people with Jesus, they, they bring their questions straight to him. And Jesus can kind of handle the offensiveness of that, and the, he wrestles with people. Uh, but the heart of the Pharisees is they don't bring it to him because they don't actually care what he has to say. They have already decided. They've decided in their hearts what's true. They've already made the judgment. And so why bring it up? Now Jesus, he's content to answer the question, and he responds, verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. All right, Jesus is just clever. It's nice. It's good to have a Savior who like, can actually kind of do some banter. Um, all right, he kind of admits that you're not, yes, talk is cheap in this situation. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. And so he says, you know, I'll, I'll put myself to the test. Which do you think is easier? To say, rise, take up your mat and go home with authority, or I forgive your sins with authority. All right, that's where apologetically, for those who don't know what that means, who probably need to know what it means, um, in terms of debating whether Jesus is real or true, whether Christianity is true, all right, here's Jesus. He's proving himself. He's putting himself to the test. And verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, this is where we might say, well, wow, he can heal a paralytic person. That's probably why they're so excited. All right, what was the point of this? That Jesus Christ forgives sin. He has authority to forgive the sins of man and women and sinners. That was the proof here. He has the authority to forgive sin. And that, that has been remarkably clear. It should be remarkably clear from this point on. And that people now need to deal with the fact that we have this, this son of man, this apparent man, who has proved that he has authority. And therefore, they need to deal with the fact that either he's blaspheming or he's real. And we are faced with that same dilemma. He's done too much to let us kind of let, let that lie. And I think he's offered enough evidence to say that the, the one seems to be true, that he is the great forgiver of sins. All right. But that then begs the question, okay, yes, he can forgive sins. But does he, whose sins did he forgive? Who does he actually go to? Who does he promise it to? And that's where, thankfully, this whole story starts to build on itself. And whereas before, we had this, this whole structure of uh, 
healing and calling people and then healing again. Now we have this new, this new set and it has the sin element to it. He's saying, I'm doing all the same stuff. I know I called it a recapitulation in this first service, and no, that's not helpful. So Steve laughed at me and said I said it twice. Um, so he's kind of reworking it, saying, oh, we're going to tell this kind of the similar stories, but with a deeper meaning to them. And so what we already saw, the calling of, of Peter and of Andrew, that they were called as apostles and they were following, and now we see someone new, we see Levi. Levi also called Matthew. In verse 13, he went out again beside the sea. He went out again, it's another. And all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. All right. The biblical authors, they kind of know what they're doing. And so there's this, forgiving of sin, and then Jesus goes and immediately calls Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. Why is that such a big deal? Because tax collectors are the quintessential epitome scum of the earth sinners of the ancient Near Eastern time. All right? They are bottom of the barrel. They're as bad as you can get. Now, uh, why were they so awful? I think most of all, uh, two things. They, the first one is one that I don't think we really understand, we don't get, uh, is because they, they were day by day committing the sin of, sins of, of greed and injustice. And basically manipulating people to take their money. Now, we don't often think of that as like one of the key big sins uh, but if you actually look throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are constantly calling that out. Now, just to, uh, to, to get ourselves in another mindset that might help to understand this a little bit more, uh, there's this story way back in the Puritans uh, where there was a Puritan nail maker. All right, he made nails. I know, it's a... He was actually a rags-to-riches story. Uh, we'll understand why. Uh, so he came, he, came to the, he came to the new world, and he became a nail maker. That tended to be a, kind of an important job because you have to build stuff with nails. And so uh, he started making six-pence nails. But what did he do? He was selling them for 10 pence. All right, this is why you're all supposed to go, oh! all right, yeah, yeah, good, good. What was so bad about that? That was a 40% profit. A 40% profit. And before that, 10 to 20%. That was a holy amount of profit to, to receive for your work. And he went through church discipline for this. He was almost excommunicated. He was, uh, he was fined and he was rebuked. They were told, the church told him to lower his prices because... He was committing the sin of greed. He was greedy, and he was not using his occupation to bless people and to love his neighbor, but he was using it to, to love himself. All right. Just, just so we're aware, all those lists of sin, there's usually like 10 to 12 of them, 
and every culture decides to pick out two or three that are the bad ones. We all know which are our two or three. In this culture, first, greed, and second, betrayal of the kingdom. These are the two bad, really bad sins. That, yes, they were greedy, which was awful, but the tax collectors, they were greedy and they were unjust because they had abandoned their nation and they'd gone off, or, uh, off to the side of the oppressors. They were turncoats. And they had sold the nation of Israel out so that they could be rich. They'd traded the kingdom of God for the kingdom of the world so that they could have their lavish houses and they could have their feasts and their banquets. This is Matthew, this is Levi. This is a guy that Jesus sees sitting at the toll booth, at the, the tax booth, working, collecting, and Jesus calls him. All right, this man's whole identity is sin. His whole identity. He has a big house because of his sin. He's friends with all the wrong people because of his sin. He wears the wrong clothes because of his sin. He is cast out from the community because of his sin. And for that very reason, Jesus Christ calls him. Because Jesus Christ is making a point. Because Jesus calls sinners to himself. That's the whole point. He found the worst sinner he could find, and he calls him, and then he has him write the first gospel. That's the Matthew we're talking about. Now, why do you care? All right, many of you, I suspect many of you, uh, you have this kind of idea in your mind that maybe you're the worst sinner in the room. Or maybe you're just, you are a sinner and you're not sure that you should be sitting in this room. Or you're not sure what Jesus Christ thinks of you. You're not sure how you relate to all this because of your sin. Or you see your sin on a daily basis and you're constantly ashamed. You don't know what to do with it. You, you don't know how that fits into your Christian identity. All right. I'm going to say it's a prerequisite to being a Christian. That's what your sin is, should be telling you is that sinners are called by Christ. That only sinners are called to Christ because only they will receive him. And that sin is a great enemy, but it can be dealt with by the blood of Christ. Self-righteousness cannot be. Self-righteousness is immune because it doesn't need Jesus, it doesn't want him. And those aren't called. Well, they're called, they don't receive it. They, don't, they can't see that is the great danger. And so, I can, I can plead with you, I can talk about this, but I hope in your heart you know that your sin does not disqualify you from being part of the kingdom of God. It doesn't disqualify you from being called. It doesn't disqualify you from being part of this. That if you didn't have sin, you wouldn't be qualified. And even those sins that are your whole identity, even those sins that 
you have built your life upon, even those sins that taint every single aspect of your whole life, even those sins from the past that come back to haunt you day by day by day, even those kind of sinners can be saved and called by Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. That's Jesus Christ come. That's Jesus Christ revealing himself by calling Matthew Levi the tax collector. Now from there, Jesus takes it one step further. He takes it one step further, verse 15. And as he reclined at, the t- at, uh, at table, uh, that must be a Greek uh, saying, as he reclined at table in his house, uh, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there are many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, not to him, they never talked to him. Uh, well, when they do, they get... They get near full, so they kind of learn not to. But um, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, remember when we saw all, the, all those people who were gathered to Jesus, the sick and the oppressed, all right, now we have the kind of reversal here. Jesus is now going to the sick and the oppressed. He is going to the sinners and tax collectors. He is eating unholy food, not really unholy, but the wages of sin. He is eating in their houses. He is becoming friends with their friends. He is fully invested and with them and befriending the sinner and the tax collector. And what happens in the Pharisees' heart? They, they rise up. The enemies rise up once again. And what do they reveal? They say, you know what? Jesus shouldn't be hanging out with these people. Because just like we talked about, the leper, the leper, he was going to make other people unclean. He was going to spread his illness. The idea was that these sinners were going to spread their sin all over the place. And they were going to defile Jesus. They were going to spread sin onto the disciples and onto his, this holy teacher. And yet, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to the righteous, but to the sinners. All right, we have to ask ourselves, in our hearts, do we really believe in forgiveness? We can talk about forgiveness and talk about how Jesus is, yes, he's the great forgiver, but are we then turning around and saying, you know, yeah, but we really want nothing to do with those people. We really want nothing to do with the sinners. Or maybe, maybe it's the way we share our gospel. And we say, you know, yeah, we will share the gospel, but only to the nice people who smile a lot. Have you heard the people, they'd be like, you know what, that person would make a great Christian. They're so nice. You know who those people are? Those people are disqualified. Unless they come to see their sin, unless they are the crying people or the sinful people, they're never going to be good Christians. They might be good Pharisees. And that's we have to recognize that Jesus didn't think like that. 
He went to the people who were so blatantly, obviously sinful that they might understand they needed a Savior. And it's incredibly convicting because, yeah, I see someone, and the more tatted up they are, the less qualified they are to receive Jesus. And that's, that's always the opposite of how it should be. That the people you see sin are the people who, who Jesus moves towards. And the people who are ready to receive it. And the people who we should say are like us. Because we are sinners and tax collectors. Now we ask, how could Jesus do it? How could he go there? All right, he can eat with sinners and tax collectors because he's in the business of eating with sinners and tax collectors because he offers himself. He offers himself for the feast. That when Jesus comes, to, to sinners and tax collectors, he offers himself. He offers himself as the atonement for sin. He offers himself as the perfection. He offers himself as the blood that they drink, as the, the body that they partake of. We have this question, you know, is it easier to say that your sins are forgiven? It's a lot easier to say it. It's a lot harder to actually make it happen. And that's where Jesus comes and he dies for sinners. And dies exclusively for sinners. That the righteous are not invited until they've become sinners. Now what does that mean for us? Uh, first, we should be embracing of our own sin. We don't need to defend our own self-righteousness. We don't have to defend our own righteousness post-Christ. We should be seeing our sin and seeing our desperate need of Jesus and be ever more thankful that we have a forgiver of sins, not desperately trying to, to drive him out of the job. All right? There's plenty of sin for him to deal with day by day by day. Uh, secondly, If you are, if you are the sinner, you should be going to Jesus. You should be going to Jesus. And that's where all the people, when they gathered around, when they were the sick, the people who realized they were sick and they were demon-possessed and when they were oppressed, and what did they do? They flocked to Jesus. And now that Jesus is saying, you know what, I'm also the forgiver of sins, all the people who feel the, the guilt of their sin and the weight of their sin and the shame of their sin, we should all be flocking to Jesus. And not just waiting at the door patiently for him to come in. We should be clawing at the ceiling to jump onto Jesus from, from the shooting down Mission Impossible style. All right? That's what we're supposed to do. And if we've done that and we have a paralyzed person who's desperately paralyzed by sin... We should be picking up the four corners and dragging them to Jesus. Impolitely, as an imposition, with great faith that Jesus Christ can heal sin. That he will forgive it. 
and that we shouldn't be inviting people to the banquet that Jesus Christ has provided with his own blood. Amen? All right. Now, I didn't do this last service, but any questions? Let's pray. Father, what a joy to have a Savior who receives sinners. And Father, we know that our sin alone does not qualify us to be uh, for heaven, but that our sin drives us to Christ. And Father, I ask that our sin would, uh, would drive us to Jesus, that we would know the one who forgives sins and who pays for our sins and who washes them away that they may never return. And Father, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I ask that we would do so not trying to prove how good we are or to get ourselves cleaned up for the table, but we would come as sinners and tax collectors who know that Jesus is already forgiven by his blood. And Father, would we, would we partake of Christ knowing that in the new heavens and new earth we will partake for all eternity in the wedding feast of the Lamb. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name.